0: Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe.
1: Hello, my name's Peter Oliver, and I'm an international tax partner with KPMG. So today I'm here with three of my esteemed colleagues to talk about the recent federal budget which was actually the second federal budget of the year but the first under our new government. It was a very much international themed budget and there are some interesting proposals which we'll talk a little bit about today. So I'm here with Tim Keeling, transfer pricing partner, Dennis Larkin, international tax partner and Jenny Wong, our ASPAC lead on ESG and tax services. So, there were three interesting things in the budget we'll talk about today, thin capitalisation, transparency and intangibles. Let's start with thin cap. Dennis, what
0: are the proposed changes for thin cap and why has Australia adopted these rules now? Thanks, Peter. There are some quite significant changes proposed in the budget to our thin capitalisation rules. Broadly, the government is proposing to move away from our existing asset-based safe harbour test to an earnings stripping rule, which is consistent with many countries around the world and is consistent with the OECD action item four from the original BEPS proposals. Specifically, there are three main changes. The first one is to remove the existing safe harbour and replace it with a 30% of earnings test um, before depreciation amortisation. Um, The second test is to replace our existing worldwide gearing ratio with a new earnings-based group ratio test. And finally, to limit our arms length debt test to now be only relating to third-party or external debt.
1: And Dennis, they're interesting because they're following the OECD norms, which really came in in BEPS 1.0. Why are we seeing them now so long after
0: other parts in the world? That's a good question, Peter. And I think part of it came with the new government, obviously. So this had been something which the government had been flagging. Um, They had spoken about it as a pre-election commitment. And I think it really fits into a general view of um, trying to make sure that we have Australian companies paying their fair share of tax. So really feeding into a multinational tax um, framework where we're ensuring that Australian companies are not eroding the tax base by having excessive debt located to Australia.
1: Strengthening those rules will obviously raise revenue, increases the integrity aspects of them and by tightening them up, and will really make groups think about their financing structures. So these changes to Safe Harbour, the Arms length Debt Test, um, they will have significant impacts on financing structures for multinational groups. Um, Tim, transfer pricing will obviously play here. What are some of the key things that groups will need to think
2: about? Thanks, Peter. And hello to all our listeners. Just want to add something to Dennis. Dennis made an interesting comment you know, saying that we've aligned to the OECD standard. This has been coming for a long time. If you think about Labor's previous proposals at the last election, which the Morrison government won, they were gonna get rid of the arms length Death test altogether and the safe harbor and just go to straight to worldwide gearing. So some might say on the Labor side that they're actually being somewhat concessionary here relative to their last proposals. And there's no doubt these are going to have a big impact for our foreign investment. If you think about our infrastructure companies, our startups, our heavy asset-based groups um, who do use a lot of related party financing, they will be impacted. They're going to need to think about this. And we'll come to a second in in terms of what are some of the issues that need to be worked through. But based on what we know now, we know that some groups are going to need to change their related party financing. And that sounds simple, but it will be complex because let's not forget that if you still continue to have related party financing, the TP rules will still apply, for example. So if you're going to change from one related party financing instrument to another, putting aside part 4A and other things that you need to think about when you might be changing these things with tax tax considerations in mind, you need to move from an arm's length structure to another arm's length structure. So there's going to be really careful transitional considerations that need to be thought about. The other sleeper here, which is really interesting, which I think people are alive to, is that The TP rules commonly focus on making sure that multinationals pay their fair share. That's what we always hear. that's generally a focus on taxable income or reducing losses. But the transfer pricing rules also apply to instances where withholding tax may be underpaid. So, it still might not be as simple as saying, well, I had an interest-bearing loan and now I'm going to make it interest-free because the transfer pricing rules, and it's open to the ATO to suggest, well, maybe that should be interest-bearing and maybe withholding tax should apply to that. And guess what? If you're over your 30% EBITDA, you won't get a consequential interest deduction. And this is not a new view from the ATO. The ATO put out some guidance a little while ago back in 2018 um, flagging this in when they were talking about the interaction of 974 with TP. And so, our clients really need to be cognizant of that when they're thinking about changing or turning off the interest rate to make sure that they actually don't go too far below a floor. So that's probably the two two or three key things I would say that clients need to be aware of now based on what we know already. And then we'll talk about it a little bit later, some of the things that we're hoping Treasury will address as part of the consultation.
0: And I might just pick up there. I mean, Tim, you made a really good point around consequences. And you know, one thing that might seem a simple fix may not be so. So as you've pointed out, interest withholding taxes are very important interaction with our interest rules generally. You know, another consideration we've seen, and we're sort of obviously working through, is what about if somebody tries to change their debt to say equity? Are there, say, commercial debt forgiveness rules that need to come into play? You might well change your classification of something from being a debt interest to an equity interest, and that may also have flow-on withholding tax consequences as well. So, absolutely right, Tim. I think to point out there, there are a number of different flow-on consequences that come out of this. Um, you really require a very holistic um, interpretation and understanding of how you know a change in these rules might well change your financing needs and other tax considerations a from Nice as well.
1: Now, good points Dennis uh, and Tim very much that interplay between a range of different factors as you're looking at it. And Dennis, if you're revisiting finance structures and, um, you know, terminating existing instruments and issuing new ones, there'll also be a range of issues to think about in terms of what those new instruments mean, the
0: consequences of of refinancing, right there? Absolutely right, Peter. Exactly right. There are a number of different consequences. Um, So, some of the ones we've mentioned around debt forgiveness, there may well be sort of foreign exchange considerations as well. Oftentimes, it may even be sort of understanding modelling that's been done previously as well and how that impacts sort of previous expected returns out of investments. So there are a whole range of issues, both tax and non-tax, to consider there, Peter.
1: No, much to, uh, much to consider with the Interplay. What are the things that we don't yet
0: know? What are you hearing that we might see? When do you think we might see some draft legislation? So it's a great question, Peter. And one of the things, we did have some consultation um, pre-budget around some of the measures, um, The budget announcements themselves were very brief, so there were only a few paragraphs in the budget papers, so a number of things were left unsaid there. I suppose the really critical considerations are firstly, will this EBITDA test I mentioned at the start, will that be accounting or will it be tax? Um, I think most people would prefer it to be tax and that's what we're expecting, um, but that's not been confirmed yet. And that was obviously something that a lot of people commented on in consultation. The other one is around the debt deduction. So how do we define the debt deduction? Is it net debt? Is it gross debt? And what goes into that? So are there hedging costs, for example? Are there bank fees? How broadly do we cast that net now? Because that's going to be a very big consideration. And then the other probably really critical one we haven't seen a lot of, but we're wanting to see more detail. Is we have a, a carry forward of the denial, so you can carry forward your denied deductions for 15 years. But will there be some form of fetter on that? Will there be, say, a, a same business test or continuity of ownership test, like we see with the losses rules? Might there be some form of you know unrealised loss testing as well? So there's some details we're hoping to see in the future. And then to your question around when might we see um, draft legislation? Well. As, as tax people always know, oftentimes you might get a Christmas present just before you go and leave. Um, you know, we may also draft legislation at the very end of this year or, or maybe hopefully early next year as well to give taxpayers enough time to prepare for a 1 July 2023
2: start date. There's probably one I'll add over and above that, Dennis, is the arm's length debt test is being maintained for third party debt but what is going to be third-party debt? Now, sure, it needs to obviously originate from a third party, but when does it stop being third-party debt? So if it gets lent to a Finco and then on lend on back-to-back terms, we're hearing that that's going to probably be okay, but again, devil in the detail. What about a third-party debt that might be uh, receive implicit or explicit support uh, when it's being lent to a subsidiary of a multinational group? The existing FinCAP rules when it comes to the arm's length debt test, already uh, try to make sure that there isn't debt parking by virtue of a guarantee. And I can't see for the life of me how um, the ATO won't want to protect that issue. But again, it's going to be interesting to see how Treasury seeks to balance... Um, what's supposed to be a simplification measure and an integrity measure with what we already know is existing complexity with the arm's length debt test rules and what will probably be further complexity when we're thinking about when a related party stops and where a third party begins.
1: Yeah, no, really good points, guys. Much to consider and to think about now. I know you're both talking to clients about it at the moment and uh, we'll see what we get when we have draft legislation the other one that just came to mind as we we're speaking then is um, inbound investors that have had structures, uh, they've disclosed tax structures and financing uh, consequences through FERB. Um, this may necessitate conversations with the tax office where there's any refinancing of those as well. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot there that, uh, that that investors need to really think about. Groups need to think about. Maybe we'll uh, we'll touch on that in a bit more detail when we get some draft legislation. But why don't we move on to transparency? Uh, now, Jenny, you've done a lot of work in this space. and know you've given a lot of thought to it, um, but it's not just a new announcement under budget. There's actually been a journey to get to where we are now. Can you tell us about both the current state of play and then the new transparency proposals in the budget?
3: Yeah, sure, Peter. So just firstly on the current state of play on tax transparency, and I'll start with Australia first. So we've got a voluntary tax transparency code in Australia. It's been around since 2016, and um, what it has is it basically sets out minimum standards for tax transparency disclosures, to show basically you know to the public the company's compliance with Australian tax laws, and obviously the larger you are, the more disclosures there are, and it requires disclosures at the moment. It's like reconciliation of your accounting profit to tax expense to tax paid, um, disclosures of international related party disclosures, effective tax rates, on country by country reporting. Um, Companies have to lodge masters and local files with the tax office, but that's not publicly available. I think there's a spectrum of corporate taxpayers when we're talking about tax transparency. You've got those taxpayers who are you know, doing the absolute bare minimum and complying with the Australian framework, which is voluntary, Then on the other end of the scale, you've got companies who are doing global best practice, you know, applying what's called the Global Reporting Initiative 207, which is a very comprehensive tax transparency framework for environmental, social and governance sort of matters. And what's driving those disclosures, um, and it's mainly for the extractives extractives industry, is international obligations, essentially. So we've got two spectrums um, of tax transparency. So that's where things are at. I think also globally, we're also heading towards a trend of a lot of uh, mandatory tax transparency disclosures and country by country reporting. Uh, Certainly, there's been a lot of public press recently and earlier this year of US investors demanding large multinational groups to use Global Reporting Initiative 207, for example. And I think the reason for that is the, the country by country reporting requirement in GRI 207 it has that granularity of detail in terms of showing permanent differences on a country by country basis. You know, it shows their tax incentives, their tax settlements, and requiring companies to disclose, you know, the narrative around that. And so that's why the investors, you know, prefer GRI 207 as uh, a preferred tax transparency framework for country by country reporting. Also, you've got the EU country by country reporting as well. That's mandatory, which applies to EU countries by country blacklisted countries and the rest of the world. That's sort of the aggregation there. And um, so that, that's really the current state of play of tax transparency. Now, if, we, if I move on to what the budget, what was announced on budget night, so the Australian government's announced uh, changes to introduce mandatory country-by-country country reporting in Australia, you know, and obviously that, that will be a big change for many companies who only do it at the moment. It's all private and confidential with the tax office. And the effective date for that is 1 July 2023. That's not too far off. So there's a bit of work companies need to do and there's a bit of work. We haven't got draft legislation yet and I heard draft legislation. um, is expected the first quarter of next year. So what we don't know is actually the direction of how country-by-country reporting will work, what the framework will be. Now, the government obviously has a couple of options. You can go down the EU route, which in my view, it's not really country-by-country reporting. It's really country-by-country reporting on an EU basis blacklisted countries in the rest of the world. You can't see what's going on in the US, South Africa, Australia. Now you can go down the OECD, make what you do on the OECD, CYC reporting publicly available. Um, But there's issues with that because there were strict confidentiality requirements uh, when OECD, CYC was first introduced. And that was a necessary condition for the adoption by the OECD. So there was a question of if you make that public, you know, is, that, is that, how's that going to wash with your international trading partners? Then you've got the GRI 207 approach. And for those who don't know the GRI 207, essentially there's four components in GRI 207. It's split between the qualitative disclosures on tax transparency and the quantitative disclosures. So the first three requirements are narrative disclosures, qualitative disclosures. It requires you to disclose your approach to tax, your approach to tax governance, risk management, your approach to external stakeholders, some of which companies are already doing. Maybe not stakeholders, you probably need to talk to your corporate affairs people about that. And then there's a country-by-country reporting under the GRI 207, which is, if you look at the data points on GRI 207, very similar to the OECD country-by-country reporting. The exceptions are... You're using consolidated data um, under GRI 207. and the second is the um, the country-by-country country reporting of permanent differences that I talked about earlier, and that's why it's uh, been favourable for some of the investors using that sort of approach. So obviously, there's a growing trend. It's Australia essentially, is, you know, gro- joining this global trend of mandatory C by C reporting. Essentially, I
2: think that's something that's missed, Jenny, in the in the. By a lot of people in the announcement, so the announcement obviously just everyone sort of honed in on country by country reporting. But the subtlety of the language and, and its direct connection, or what we think it might be, its direct connection to GRI 207. I think people are again realizing now that that might be in play. And to me, um, interested in your thoughts. But to me, that book could have massive implications at a practical level, particularly if you're an inbound. You could be a small inbound company here, part of a multinational, but minding your own business, so to speak, and yeah. below the radar and a lot of the other transparency measures that we have, you might be below, you know, 100 or 200 million revenue. Sure, you might be doing some country by country reporting, but it's not public. And you might be below the thresholds for our general governance right now. But suddenly, some of those might be thrown <laughs> right into the deep water when well, it comes to these announcements, right?
3: Yeah, exactly right. So, I mean, you could have an Australian company with a US parent or EU parent, and is the Australian government going to say to the Australian sub, you have to do country-by-country country reporting, including disclosures at in, you know, the parent level? And if you take the EU, they've gone down the specific path of not doing the rest of the world CYC reporting. So is Australia going to mandate, you know, override all of that and impose SGE penalties if that doesn't occur? I think the consultation process will be quite interesting um, and quite an important process for inbound investors.
1: And there'll be a challenge there, Jenny. You know, as our as our clients uh, sit there thinking about how to prepare for this, of of how they communicate what that means, um, where they are part of a global group where HQ is sitting somewhere else and is is thinking in a different way around what uh, what you know public disclosure reporting might mean for them. So whilst we've got some different proposals, there will nonetheless, nonetheless be some common challenges. And what should groups be thinking about in terms of uh, practically preparing for this?
3: Well, firstly, if we take on that point about um, foreign-owned groups, I think it's really important for foreign-owned groups to be part of the consultation process, understanding what it means, what the practicalities of that is. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, at the moment, there are groups preparing OECDs country-by-country reports, but that's not publicly available. Taking it to a public level is another board game. So does it stop at the head of tax now? Does these reports stop at the head of tax, or do you actually have to go to the board, CFO now? And what sort of processes do you need to go through that? Do you, are there, there's obviously wider stakeholder group now if it becomes publicly available, your NGOs, your civil society groups, you know, government officials, investors everyone's going to see this information, and you've got to ask yourself, is it going to be subject to misinterpretation? Does this new C-by-C framework tell your full tax story? And if not, do you need to make additional disclosures? Because if you don't tell your tax story, someone's going to tell it for you. So they, they were the key things I would see as practical issues to consider. The other thing is, as we move, you know, the, uh, towards C-by-C reporting, is it going to be as common as preparing your tax return processes, you know? And if so, have you considered, like, automating your processes? You know, how's your systems going to work? Or are you going to continue doing it manually? They're the things I would, I would consider.
1: There's a lot in there, isn't there? Potentially more on an ongoing basis that groups really need to think about and to do than some of these other discrete changes
3: by themselves. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. um, Just before we move on from transparency, uh, it doesn't just stop at tax transparency. We've got new consultation on a public beneficial ownership register proposal. What does that involve?
3: Okay. So Treasury, this was shortly after the budget, released a consultation paper on the design features of a new proposed beneficial ownership register regime for Australian entities Um, Interestingly it's tax motivated um, except you probably need your corporate lawyers to assist you with that data collection process. The measures are intended to be another tool to improve uh, Australia's tax collection capabilities. Essentially align the beneficial ownership disclosure rules with the rest of the world because Australia is considered a little bit behind in that regard. So the new measures will be implemented in phases. So with uh, unlisted regulated companies to be the first cab of the rank and subject to these rules. At the future phases, the government will consult on approaches to purchases disclose beneficial ownership, other legal vehicles like trusts, and um, work out you know, centralisation of information on a public register as well. So it's going to be another data collection exercise for everyone, I think, and it would be important to work out processes of how information can be disclosed in a timely manner. 16th of December 2022 is the closing date for submissions, so I think it's important to review the proposals with your legal team and determine how the proposals will impact your systems, your governance processes and other issues like privacy concerns. So, just some of the things to consider. There's a lot there.
1: There's a lot there and there's a lot always going on. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to finding out more as the consultation concludes and then we get more details. So finally, the third area that I wanted to talk about today was the intangibles proposal in the budget. Um, but before we do that, Tim, let's come back to you because the ATO has had a lot of focus around intangibles recently. And here's a challenging question. Can you give us a little nutshell summary of, the, of where that sits and what's been driving some of this, this change leading up to the proposal?
2: So, if we think about where this has gone in terms of the ATO's focus areas over the last five years, um, intangibles has really scaled up from that time. We've had focus on changes and transfers of assets, particularly intangible assets, for a long time. The ATO's business restructuring ruling came out in 2011, for example, and the OECD included some business restructuring guidance some time ago but where the ato really started to take this was particularly with the pharma space to begin with to see what was the value of intangibles in that space and now they've sort of gravitated towards the software and the tech industry in particular and there's this concept of embedded ip that's that comes through on that what does that mean well where the ATO is going particularly when it comes to the TP rules is to say sure we get that you're paying and you're using some valuable IP there is value in a brand name there might be value in know-how the question is under arm's length circumstances, would that actually be a royalty if it was an independent party and not embedded in the product? So the ATO put out TA 2018-2, which was an alert around this concept, because obviously if you're paying for a royalty, you might be paying the same amount, but you get a withholding tax clip on the way through. And then they put out additional practical compliance guideline. They've got a draft ruling out there on intangibles at the moment. We have a Obviously, a a draft ruling regarding withholding tax for software at the moment. So there's a lot of momentum in this space, and let's be real. You know, it's when the Labor government announced this. It's not like it was going to be a politically disastrous announcement for the um, electorate. The electorate wants to make sure that the multinationals are paying their fair share and this does cause I think quite reasonable concern and so the Labor government put out this announcement to me and you know Dennis and I will come to the announcement in a second to me there is a question about what else this this announcement or this new legislation can get because we've had since pretty much 2015 a rolling set of legislation honing in on international arrangements we'll come to that in a moment but I think it's fair to say that this focus is only going one direction and it only continues to go one direction and to me, it links to a comment that Jenny made about SGEs and governance and expectation, another legislative amendment or another le- new set of legis- piece of legislation is going to mean as a public officer or as a head of tax or as a CFO that reasonable steps are going to, and proportionate steps are going to need to be made to address this. Now, for many, it might be not applicable, but for some... You're going to need to make sure you investigate it understand it and document your position carefully but maybe i'll throw to you dennis taking over your role peter i'll throw to you dennis and just say i mean we see this ruling sorry this legislation legislation i should say we see this bundle of rulings but i mean what do you think in terms of where it fits in and where it slots in both in terms of our existing suite of legislation as well as you know the international environment
0: yeah look my first response to that, Tim, is I I don't really know what fits in. It's a good question because there is a massive suite of legislation, as you say, already existing. I mean, this is one more plank of multinational tax avoidance legislation, as, as you've mentioned, and as Jenny said as well, it fits into what we call significant global entities. So they are the largest sort of multinationals, I suppose, in Australia. So we're generally looking at a turnover of over Australian dollars, one billion. So it's, it's, you know, these are big companies, but there are a number of different measures that already apply to that. And as you've said, Tim, there's a lot of ATO guidance. And adding to your list of different guidance, there's also a taxpayer alert around the use of tax treaties as well, where there may not be substance in the other jurisdictions. So Tim mentioned withholding tax. Tax treaties can often reduce the withholding tax rate, but a taxpayer alert was put out recently essentially saying, well, if there's a country in the middle there that doesn't really belong based on a, an overarching look at all the different functions and, and you know, profile and assets in that particular group, should that be there and should the treaty benefit be cancelled? So going back to your question, Tim, I feel this is just sort of one more, one more rule, which I don't necessarily see fitting in easily because we've already got rules that look at paying to a jurisdiction with not enough tax. We already look at rules, you know, where there may be a, a benefit being achieved from withholding tax perspective as well. So, I think to your point, politically it probably doesn't hurt because it's you know going against some of the bigger bigger end of town and picking up sort of something which probably isn't going to affect a lot of voters. But I think the problem is for both tax advisors and people in the tax system, such as public officers and CFOs, it is as you said, one more thing you need to check off and be comfortable you've done the right thing on.
2: There's there's two main concerns I have with it. One is that our other, what I'll call, anti-avoidance legislation, and we, we sort of don't know if this is anti-avoidance yet, but let's just uh, let's assume we walk down that path. You know, we look at the DPT, you look at the anti-hybrids legislation, they, they have these, you know, substance-based or integrity carve-outs. I don't see that here yet. Yeah. And so I go, is that fair and equitable, just from a policy perspective? The other thing I think, and I'm gonna ask you this question on the spot is, so what? And by that I mean, if we're about to adopt BEPS 2.0 and Pillar Two, mm-hmm. and we're about to have a 15% minimum, you know, um, taxing right threshold around the world, yep. and this is quick clipping in an equivalent rate, I mean, are we doing a lot of work here for SGEs that where there might, sure, there might be some dividend on it, but it might be disproportionate to, you know, the, the compliance cost of, of making sure you adhere to these rules.
0: I agree, and I think the so what is the compliance cost? To be honest, Tim, I think that's what concerns me. That you're right, we've got a number of other rules out here that, that target low tax low tax amounts, but one more rule means more compliance. Um, and it also means one more rule in the back of your mind that may well come and affect you. So you may say, well, I'm not in the diverted profits tax you mentioned maybe for some reason I'm out of the pillar two rules you alluded to there with the 15% global minimum tax, but could this come and get me as well? And one of the critical considerations that I see from, again, the relatively limited budget announcement is it affects both direct and indirect payments. And we've seen that with our anti-hybrid rules, where um, we again take quite a long arm approach and look through various chains of entities outside of Australia to me, my concern is, are we once again going to ask taxpayers to look through multiple entries? That's difficult, firstly, in terms of getting information at times. It obviously requires a lot of input from around the world um, to provide information back to Australia, and it's quite a large compliance burden. So I think the so what, to some degree, to me, Tim comes back to, it, it's another potential cost. It's another layer of uncertainty for taxpayers in terms of, sort of trying to navigate a number of different overlaying um, integrity rules.
1: Just so we have a sense of timing, Dennis, this will apply or is intended to apply to payments from? 1 July
0: 2023 as well, Peter. So similar to the other ones. Yeah.
1: And and, and if it was to result in that type of a compliance scenario, our learnings from the hybrid mismatch rules, yeah. you, you might have law, you might not know what that quite means. Yeah until you actually get to the point of
0: having to deal with the compliance and getting an indication from the tax office of what they expect. I think that's right, Peter. And again, going back to the hybrid rules, I mean, the legislation was there. It did talk about indirect payments as well. It wasn't until sometime after those rules were in place that we saw some practical compliance guidelines, setting out what the ATL was going to expect from taxpayers. And I think it's fair to say that that probably took some taxpayers a bit by surprise. So I think you're absolutely right. One of the concerns is Yeah, understanding as soon as we can what the ATO will expect um, taxpayers to be able to do in the bounds of obviously timeliness and and information flows to be able to comply with these rules. And just kind
1: of rewinding back a little bit in terms of what the proposal is, guys, uh, it talks about payments related to intangibles, which we don't know what that means. And we're going to have to wait till draft legislation to see what, what that might mean when it very comes out.
2: Wish we could comment further, Peter. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> that, that was a statement and a question <laughs> for the benefit of the audience because I'm scratching my head as much as I'm sure people that are listening.
0: So, uh. and, and just to that point, Peter, we did again have some consultation on this um, prior to the budget and I think that was a, a common theme once again. Well, intangibles is a very broad word. Um, you know, there's a very broad galaxy of things that fall under that. So the, the more we can maybe understand what that means, you know, that again helps taxpayers to respond to it sensibly.
1: Excellent. Team, we might finish there. There's been a huge amount that we covered then and a lot more as we start to see details of these proposals roll out, things we can dive into in a future date, but thank you very much for your time.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG TaxNow podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Tax Now Insights for regular updates. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.